Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for putting up with an American. More on that in a minute. Um, so I'm from South Bend, Indiana, which is a smallish city. It's about 100,000 people, about 90 miles east of Chicago. And South Bend's not the kind of city that you would maybe hear of if you're not from South Bend, except for two things. Uh, one is a university called Notre Dame. Any Notre Dame fans here? I don't know. You might not know this. It's a big, big university in the United States. They're in South Bend. And it's a French Catholic university whose mascot is the Fighting Irish. And there's a number of stories about where that might have come from. One of the stories that I love, there, there's two theories of where that name comes from. But one of the theories is that um, where it was planted by French Catholic priests, it quickly became inundated with Irish Catholics because uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s, if you're an immigrant to the United States and you're Catholic, you know, you weren't like necessarily high status coming to the U.S. in that era. It's sort of the way that Americans tend to think of uh, Latino immigrants today, unfortunately, right? So you have this little Catholic enclave in the middle of the woods in Indiana. It gets inundated with a bunch of Catholics, a bunch of Irish Catholics. And then there's uh, a hate group in the United States that's been around for decades called the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. And the KKK was on the rise in Indiana in the 1920s. And they planned to hold this massive rally in South Bend. And there were actually men on the street corners of South Bend wearing the white KKK hoods, directing traffic toward their rally. And the KKK wasn't just anti-black. It was also anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. So it was a bunch of these Irish Catholics from Notre Dame that left the campus and brawled with the KKK in the streets and said, not in our city. And they chased them off the streets of South Bend. Uh, So that's the fighting Irish. Yeah, yeah. Fighting for harmony and against hate. Yeah. Uh, so Notre Dame is there, and then the other reason that people lately have possibly heard of South Bend is, is if you pay attention to American politics, which, time out, let me just say, if you pay attention to American politics, I'm sorry. I made the apology last year, but I feel like we have more to apologize for this year. Like, every time I go abroad, I have more to apologize for. I don't know what the metaphor is for the United States right now. I was thinking, in some ways, we're like a toddler on a really bad day. Like, we're irrational, and we're fighting for no reason, and we're grumpy, and we can't be reasoned with. And we just need like a good nap, you know? But then I thought maybe the metaphor is more like we're drunk in America right now. I can't figure, but maybe we're like a drunk toddler. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much as bad as it seems, uh, and we're all kind of working through it. But uh, our little town of South Bend, Indiana, our mayor uh, is running for president. And uh, he's this hotshot 37-year-old Harvard grad Rhodes Scholar gay Episcopalian who's running for president, and he's sort of launched up into the national uh, sort of spotlight. So if you've heard of Mayor Pete Buttigieg... Or if you happen to hear of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, that's my people right there, okay? Um, So yeah, so we have a church in South Bend. Uh, 2016, uh, I lived in the area, but not in the city. Uh, Just a few minutes outside the city of South Bend. And I was working at a church at the time. And in 2016, this sense of calling became really clear for me to be a part of a new church inside the city of South Bend. And so uh, there was a moment when I stood on a big stage in front of a lot of people and told them that that's what I was going to do. And then a few days later, right after that moment where I stood on a big stage and I said, hey, I'm going to be a part of putting a church in South Bend, uh, I was at a bar in South Bend on a Friday night, and I get cornered by like eight people I've never met before at this bar. And they come up to me and they say, hey, are you the guy who's going to put the church here in South Bend? I was like, yeah. I thought I had like my first converts, you know, like my first recruits. And then they just start pummeling me with suspicious sort of questions. Like, why are you doing that? Who, Who do you think you are? What's, what's your game, buddy? And you can just sense like in their body language, in their questions, that they, they had like a problem with me. And the thing is, I wasn't coming from outside South Bend. I'd lived inside the city for 14 years at that point. 
But they didn't know that. They knew that I was an outside kid from the suburbs, from the big church out there who decided that he was going to put a church in the middle of that city, and they were concerned about it. Uh, So there was that encounter at the bar, and then for the next six weeks, like every meeting I had with someone in the city of South Bend was sort of saturated with the same kind of suspicion. I'd meet with city leaders, nonprofit leaders, and they all just, they had this guarded, um, concerned, suspicious sort of posture toward me. And at first I got really upset about that, like really confused about that. Um, Again, I've lived in the city for my entire adult life. I was like, who... Who are you? Like, who made you the committee to tell me, like, I can't put a church in my own city, you know? And then I sat back from those experiences for a moment, and I began to think about the narrative that my city has lived through, uh, especially for the last 50 or 60 years. And even beyond that, like, going back to its beginnings. uh, And the narrative began to change my perspective on all this suspicion that I was encountering from the people that I was talking to. So I went back to the very beginning and I read about the First Nations peoples who were uh, the Native Americans who were on our land long before any Europeans uh, came and settled that place. And then I read about how they were displaced by European settlers. First of all, it was fur traders that came into the woods of Indiana and on the river there used that river as a trade route to get to the lakes, to get to the oceans, to sell their goods. And then uh, from the fur traders uh, came a sort of settlement on the river there. And then around the same time, a French Catholic priest shows up and plants a, a rugged little school in the middle of the woods there that would go on to become like one of the richest, most elite universities in the U.S. Uh, I read about how um, uh, a group called Studebaker began to make wagons. I told the group this yesterday. Has anybody um, seen the Budweiser Clydesdales in a commercial? You guys know Budweiser beer, right? Don't pretend you don't know beer. Uh, you know, the, the Clydesdales are like these big, big, beautiful horses that are a part of all the advertising for Budweiser. If you've ever seen a Budweiser ad, there's always a red wagon being drawn behind those Clydesdales. Well, that wagon was made in the factory in South Bend called Studebaker. And the wagon company turned into a car company around 1903 when they heard that somebody in Detroit, Michigan was making horseless wagons called cars, right? So they turned the corner, and it's this phenomenally successful enterprise. And by 1963, Studebaker Cars employs 30,000 people in a city of 130,000 people. And in 1963, thanks to um, some bad contracts and some poor management, the factory went bankrupt overnight, and 30,000 people lost their jobs in in one day. I remember reading about that and then about the phenomenal economic hardship that has plagued our city ever since. I remember reading about the redlining, which is a word for racially discriminating housing policies that keep black people in some neighborhoods and white people in better neighborhoods. And the, you can still see the redlining in the city today. And then I sort of fast forwarded to the year 2011 where uh, Newsweek magazine, a big important magazine in the U.S., decided that they would put together a list of America's 10 most dying cities. And South Bend was number nine. And I remember like working through that narrative and realizing that um, if a kid gets neglected and abused for years and abandoned over and over again, and if all the people leave that kid behind, that kid's probably going to have a hard time trusting new people, right? And then I thought about the city and the idea that a city might not be that different. And if a city has just been kicked over and over and over again from things within it and from things without it, over the decades, it might get to a point where when a new person shows up, it might be a little bit suspicious. Like, because whenever somebody has been a part of this place, they have hurt us and used us and extracted what they could take and then walked away. 
And that began to really shift uh, my feeling toward the city. Uh, I began to think about the sort of theological meaning of a city. Um, the idea that like a city is a, a living, breathing, spiritual thing. Right? It's not just a collection of individual human beings who happen to live in close proximity to each other. A city sort of becomes this living, breathing, spiritual, conscious thing, right? Uh, there's a researcher in the United States, uh, they call the Santa Fe Institute, and they looked at what happens when cities form, and they observed empirically that uh, when you double the population of a place, you more than double its creative and economic output. So there's, there's a great good that comes out of a city, right? And it, it isn't simply the sum of its parts. Somehow something emerges beyond the sum of its parts when a city comes together. But it's also true that crime and violence increase by more than the addition of the people in a city. So that when you double the population of a city, you don't just double its creative, or more than double its creative economic output, you also more than double uh, its, its sickness. Like whatever is broken in our midst, whatever is broken in us gets amplified in the cities that we create. And I began to think about the, the weight and, and the importance of a city. And I began to think about how the scriptures actually speak to cities. So you can look at Jonah, and God speaks to Jonah about the city of Nineveh. And I don't think God just means Nineveh as a heading for the individual persons who live there. I think God means Nineveh is a, is a living, breathing thing, and it has a soul, and I care about it, and I want you to help it wake up. And I read about Jesus at the city of Jerusalem weeping over the city and speaking to the city. And I think Jesus knows that Jerusalem isn't just a place with a bunch of individual persons. Jerusalem is a living, breathing thing. It's a city, and it has a soul, and he's weeping over the soul of that city. And I remember feeling that way about my city. And I remember thinking to myself, if my city is sick and hurting in a lot of ways... Um, if it is for far too long, had a hard time imagining that anybody would love this place, then our job is to love this city as well as we possibly can. And we imagined a, a highly particular kind of love. Because I imagined, too, that if that same kid who'd been abused and neglected for far too long, if that kid crawled up on the lap of his mother or father and looked his mother and father in the eye and said to them, do you love me? And then that parent, like, broke eye contact with the child and looked out upon the world and said, I love all my children. That would fundamentally fail the task of love in that moment. It might be true that a parent loves all his children, all her children, but in that moment, love called for that parent to look that child in the eye and say, I love you. And so that, um, that sense of calling has shaped our church in a, a really powerful, important way uh, in the last couple of years that we've been together in the city of South Bend. Um, we feel God calling us to love our city, um, particularly, specifically, to help her kind of raise her head and say it's good to be in South Bend. I share that with you for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, when a stranger from across the ocean comes and talks to you, you might want to know a little bit about like where they've come from and what they're up to and why they're doing it. Well, I come from South Bend. Uh, I'm a pastor of a little church in the city that I'm in love with. Um, and we do what we do for a number of reasons, but we believe love is particular, and we believe that called has, God has called us to love South Bend in the way that that God's love is revealed in Jesus, which is particular. It's in a body. It wasn't an abstract divine love that showed up. It was a particular love that showed up, that walked in a particular place, that had particular friends, that ate particular meals. And we feel called to that sort of thing. So I I tell you that for that reason. But I I also tell you this um, because you're in a city. A year ago when I came here, I was just like struck by where you are, Redeemer like the city block that you're in, the neighborhood around you, and the narrative of the city that you're a part of, which has 
as you know better than I, had its troubles. Uh, I mentioned to the team yesterday, when I travel to other places, I try to sort of get my bearings. So I was looking for, like, documentaries to watch from Belfast. And I, I know this won't surprise you, right? But I found a bunch of documentaries, and they all in one way or another told the story of um, the violence that has broken this place for far too long. And I was watching those uh, documentaries, and I was thinking about you. And the overwhelming feeling I had is that God loves Belfast. And I don't mean that abstractly or theoretically. The feeling I had is that God loves Belfast, and the way that I know that God loves Belfast is that Redeemer Central is here. I really mean that. Not that this is the only expression of God's love in the city, but this is a particular expression of God's love in the city. You get to love this old building. You get to love this neighborhood. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that God has a particular love for the city of Belfast. That God would speak to the soul of Belfast about her troubles, but that he would also speak to her about her dignity. I think God would say it's good when he looks upon the soul of Belfast. It may be troubled, but it's good. I think he would speak with great love, and I think he speaks that love through a place like Redeemer, a community like yours. And so uh, it's my joy to hop on an airplane and and come over here for a bit and learn from you and be inspired by you and take some of your stories back to my community to tell them, um, hey, guys, I don't think we're crazy because there's at least like one other community that's also this weird, and we're all in it together. Um, I really mean that. Um, So that's why I'm here. Now, uh, this is... uh, um, this is the days of Easter. I don't know if you know that, but Easter isn't just a day on the calendar, but in the life of the church, Easter is a, is a period of time where we remember and sort of press into the lived experience of the resurrected Christ that the church uh, lived in, um, especially between uh, Easter and then Ascension and, and Pentecost, right? So we're still in the days of Easter. It's still Easter Sunday, right? And this past year, uh, just a few weeks ago, as I was getting ready for Easter in South Bend, I was working on my sermon, and I felt this, this difficult, familiar feeling that I have often had in my life and my faith, especially as Easter is coming. And the best way I can describe it is like the closer we get to Easter, I know that we are getting closer to the center of Christian faith and experience, right? Like we don't gather on Sundays just because Jesus had some good ideas, even though I think Jesus had some good ideas, right? We don't, we don't gather as a community and the church hasn't persisted for 2,000 years just because of that. Like something happened there that, that took a dead body and made it alive and took a dead world and is beginning to make it alive. And the church for 2,000 years has been living in, in the echo of that, right? So we're getting closer to Easter and I know that it means we're getting closer to the center of the center of the center of what our faith has meant and how it has been experienced in the world. And the feeling that I have is one that I've had often in my faith. And it's a difficult experience for me. The feeling I've had is that the closer I get to the center, the less certain I feel. That the the closer I get to the center of the center of the center of faith, the less certain I feel. Things begin to sort of slip out of my hands. They feel a little bit elusive. And this has been troubling to me, both as a person of faith and as a pastor. Because I feel like I've seen people like me in places like this, behind pulpits like this, and the closer they get to the center, the more confident they seem to get, the louder they seem to get, right? Like the, they can like pound the, the fist on the table and just like be really, really convincing of all the clarity they have around these things. And I've often felt to myself, like the fact that I, I feel a little uh, less certain the closer I get to the center, I've often thought that's like a failure of some sort for me. 
And I was feeling those feelings again as we were getting closer to Easter. When this year, for the first time, something struck me as I was studying the gospel text that has never stood out to me before. But when I saw this, it was actually incredibly liberating. So I want to share this with you. I want to look at the gospel narrations of the resurrection of Jesus with you. I just want to quickly hit each of the four gospels. And I want, to, I want to argue that something's missing. Like Once I saw this, it kind of blew my mind. Something's missing from all the resurrection accounts. See if you can find it. Let's look at these. Let's start with Mark. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body of Jesus and wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that, might, that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, he's risen. All right, so that's Mark's account. Hold on to that. Let's look at the next one I've got here. I think this is Luke. Uh, In Luke's account of the resurrection, we read, Joseph took Jesus' body down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. That's my typo, sorry. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. That's Luke's account. Let's go to John. John's gospel tells it like this. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And then let's go on to Matthew. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it, which is a baller move, by the way. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he's risen just as he said. Anybody notice what's missing from the resurrection accounts? The resurrection. Jesus, the, the resurrection is missing from the resurrection account. Now hang with me for a second. I promise we're going to work this out, okay? The actual moment of the resurrection is never narrated in the resurrection accounts. Now, this is striking to me for a number of reasons. First of all, the gospel writers have no problem narrating events that witnesses weren't there for. So if your argument is, well, that happened inside the tomb, nobody was there to see it, 
I would say, well, the temptation in the wilderness happened in the wilderness. Nobody was there to see that, but they have no problem narrating that. There are other aspects of Jesus' life and experience that the gospel writers are compelled to narrate, though they weren't there to see it themselves. But this moment, for some reason, is not narrated. Now, if I'm Jesus, this is frustrating to me. I'm like, dude, like, come on, man. This is my moment. This, this is my victory, right? They, they conspired against me. My friends betrayed me. My other friends abandoned me. The religious leaders made up lies about me. The political leaders killed me after they tortured me. You put me in a tomb. And then there's that moment. If I'm Jesus, the way I want it narrated is something like this. I want it to be like, they're in the darkness. As the religious leaders and the political leaders high-fived one another, celebrating their victory over this man. They're in the darkness as his friends cowered in fear or faced their own betrayal. They're in the darkness. The earth shook and a shot of light broke in like a laser and the dead body of the one they thought was a criminal was raised up to new life in power and glory and the whole world would soon see that he was the man. And then he walked out of the tomb and he dropped a mic. That's how I feel like I would want this narrated if I'm Jesus. I would want the moment of resurrection, the moment when the Father raised me up. I, I would want that like front and center in the text It's nowhere in the text. Now hang with me. I believe in the resurrection, okay? I think rationally it's the best account. I felt evidence that we have of what happened 2,000 years ago. And in my own experience, I've I've seen it, I've felt it, I've lived it. So I believe in the resurrection, but I'm just observing. The resurrection is never narrated in the resurrection accounts. Almost as if the closer you get to the center, the less that you get to master it, control it. Almost as if the closer you get to the center of the center of the center, the more that you will discover that you are on the edges of a mystery. Not that we can't know it, but that we can't master it or control it, that we can't own that event, that moment. And so, again, these texts, these gospel writers, they know that they're narrating the center of the center of the center of the faith. And the one thing they don't do is they don't give you the center. They don't spell it out. They just give you the phenomena that surrounds that mystery, right? They put his body in the tomb. That's an event that surrounds the mystery. They go back in the tomb is empty. That's an event that surrounds the mystery. But at the center, there's this curious blind spot, right? You can't quite see it. Now, I don't think this should surprise us, actually. Um, this actually seems to be what the scripture does when you get closer to the center, So if the resurrection of Jesus is like the center of the New Testament story, then I would argue in the Old Testament, Exodus and the giving of the law are the center of the Old Testament story. That would be the high watermark in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Well, in Exodus 20 and chapter 33, these peculiar things happen. So in Exodus 20 and Exodus 33, Moses is on top of the mountain. On top of the mountain is as close to you get as the resurrection garden, okay? Like he's, he's there at the center of the center of the center, right? In Exodus 20, just after he's received the Ten Commandments, we read this. I love this. Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The thick darkness. How about chapter 33, where Moses is talking to God and saying, you're calling me to go lead the people into a new and unknown future? You're calling me to lead them into a wilderness that we have not mapped? And he says to God, I want to know, I want to see you. I want, I, I want you to back this up. I want to lay my hands on, on the center of who you are so that I can go out there with confidence, so I can be certain of what I'm up to, right? 
And God refuses to really give him that. Rather, uh, in chapter 33, we read the Lord saying, I'll tell you what we'll do. There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Actually, again and again and again in the scriptures, the closer you get to the center, the less the text reeks of certainty and clarity and more it draws you into the edge of a mystery. And this year, as we were getting closer to Easter, I was uh, wrestling with that, and I was actually finding myself strangely comforted with that idea. Um, If life with Jesus is life in the kingdom of God, and if by the word God, we mean anything at all, like what the tradition has always meant by that word, well, then it's a word that points to something that is so radically far beyond our language, our mind, or our experience, that I think it's actually comforting (laughs) that we can't wrap our arms all the way around it. Because if we could, it probably wouldn't be God, (laughs) right? Now, I don't think we can wrap our arms all the way around the mystery. Um, And I think because of that, it calls us to a certain kind of open posture in faith and in life. But I do think um, that we're not left to simply, like, throw up our hands and, like, have no sort of bearing in the mystery that we call God. I think God's actually doing some really good things through this. Um, when I was in college, I, uh, I went to school as a music major. And uh, growing up, like, I didn't have a lot going for me. Uh, I failed half my classes. I, um, I, I, I had the athletic ability of a five-year-old when I was 15. <laughs> I still kind of walked around. You know, like, kids walk around like, they're, like they can't like, make all their limbs work. I'm still that way on a football field or a pitch, if you will. Um, so I didn't have sports going for me. I didn't have academics going for me. I was terribly insecure. And the one place where I knew that I could do okay was music. So I go away to college, and I'm going to be a music major. And then it's at college. I went to a Christian college where you could major in music or business, but you could also major in biblical studies or philosophy or ministry, right? And so it's during my freshman year of college that God starts sort of bringing me back to a sense of calling that I had abandoned. And that sense of calling was to do like sort of what I'm doing here today, to to serve the church in a sort of vocation of ministry. So I'm in college and I feel that calling sort of coming back to me. And I'm really freaked out about it. Uh, Because if I'm going to change my major from music to something like biblical studies or Christian ministry, it feels like I'm going to turn my back on everything that was secure and dependable for me. Like music was the one thing that I knew would work. I felt like God was asking me to like leave that behind and sort of stick my neck out for this sense of calling. So I wrestled with it for a while. I talked to mentors and professors, and I said I would make my change. Now, on the way to making my change, I had, I had mentors and professors call me into their office and tell me, you're making a terrible mistake. The, the loudest voices in my life, the closest people in my life said to me, you should probably stick with music. Like, Jay, you don't have much going for you. I'm not sure you should like give up on the one thing that's working out for you right now. But I felt this growing sense of deep inner conviction that this is what I was supposed to do. And so there's a day when I went to the registrar's office at my college and I filled out the paperwork to switch my major from music to Christian ministries. It was just a piece of paper, but it felt like a monumental thing, right? So I go to the registrar's office and I fill out the paperwork and I go back to my dorm room and I go to bed for the night later that day, right? I wake up the next morning having just sort of extracted myself from the one enterprise that seemed like a guarantee and like written my name on a document that said, I'm going to give myself to something that has no promises, is what it felt like, right? 
I wake up the next morning, and I remember I'm staring at the dorm room ceiling, which was several colors of yellow and stained, which is concerning when you're in a freshman boys' dorm in college, right? But I'm, like, looking at the ceiling, like, I wake up in bed, and the, the first thought that hits me, like, out of the blue, I have a thought that I've never had in my entire life, and the first thought that hit me is, I don't think I believe in God. Yeah, you're not sure if you should laugh at that, right? It's, it's, just, it's kind of comedic now, I know, right? I, like leave behind the one thing that I could count on, like throw my lot into this calling for ministry. I wake up the next day and it's like belief that I had always taken for granted just suddenly evaporated on me, just disappeared on me. Spent the next couple of years in college working it out. Like what about the Bible? What kind of book is this? God, what do we mean by that? What about all these problems and questions and all these objections and all these arguments? I was like slowly working this out and it was terrifying. It was socially challenging because I was at a Christian college, right? So a lot of the questions I was asking were not very welcome there. There were days I felt um, like I was the modern, living, breathing, doubting Thomas. And for most of that experience, I felt like it was bad to be Thomas. Because Thomas is the guy who struggles to believe, right? And then I read Thomas's story a little closer too. And there's a thing that happens in Thomas's story that I hadn't noticed until a better commentator pointed it out. And it again sort of gave me permission to recognize that we're on the edge of a mystery that we probably can't wrap our arms all the way around. And that that's maybe not a bad thing. So let me show you what I mean about Thomas. Uh, Let's go to the gospel accounts after Jesus' resurrection. Again, this is sort of where the gospels live um, for where we're living right now in the Easter season, right? These are the days between the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost. And we read uh, Thomas' dilemma, right, in chapter 20. Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, the resurrected Christ. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is, this is like the, the experience that I knew in my own life. Like, uh, I, I need some evidence here, people, right? Like, it's not adding up to me the way it adds up to all of you, right? Well, then, of course, a little while later, this happens. His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, watch this, My Lord and my God. Now, two things about that expression from Thomas. Um, First of all, he's the first person in all of Scripture to say that about Jesus. Pay attention to that. The guy who was like at the back of the pack of faith, as all of his friends ran easily along in the project, right? The guy that was sort of on the periphery, like, I don't know if I believe this thing that you guys are all going along with, right? When it comes to the moment when he gets his hands on what has happened, he's the first person to look at the resurrected Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. The first person to to give that fullest expression of Christian faith in all of the scriptures. The guy who's at the back of the pack of faith leaps forward, and I'm not sure it's in spite of the questions that he's asking. It might actually be because of the questions that he's asking that something about the way that mind worked allowed him that when when he finally did get his hands on the mystery, when he finally got there, it allowed him to fully go into its implications, right? Now, here's the other thing about what happens with Thomas. It's not just that, like, he's the first person in the scripture to say it. 
But remember that we have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian theology, which has taught us that it's orthodox and understandable to look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. 2,000 years ago, no good Jew would have ever looked at a human being and said, my Lord and my God. Thomas bumps into a completely new category that had never existed before. I mean, this isn't like he gets the right answer on a theology exam. This is his mind, his heart, his life are opened up to a mystery that has never been named like that before in human history, right? Which I I think is to say that, like, when you get your hands on the mystery, it will probably break your categories and lead you into fundamentally new modes. And when that happens, you probably won't feel certain. Certainty is a word for mastery. Certainty is a word for when you stand above a problem and you look down on it and you can map the entire thing. I think faith is a word for what happens when you enter the mystery of God revealed in Christ and discover that it is so expansive, so beautiful, that you can't even see the edges of it. You can get your hand on a little bit of it. And Thomas isn't able to contain in his life the whole mystery of God, but he gets his hands on the resurrected Christ. He gets, he gets a little touch of it. And it leads him into a radically new way of thinking and believing that nobody had ever heard of before. This is comforting to me because I think God is always calling us into new modes of belief. Not, not that we're going to like contradict um, what God has revealed, but in every era, in every place and time, in every human life, in every body, God is calling you to a particular version of faith that in some way will be new. It won't be something that you'll master, that you'll have certainty over. It won't be something that you can map entirely because it's the mystery of God meeting you in your life. And so there'll be days when you are confident of it and days when you're doubting it. And there'll be days when you feel like you have your hands on it. And there'll be days when it feels like it slips through your fingers. But I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. And if, if the word God means any of what it has traditionally meant in the great theistic traditions, it makes sense that when a human life encounters that mystery, the, the best you might have is a, is a touch of it, right? And then that touch might change your entire life. There's a poet named Christian Wyman who wrote a memoir called My Bright Abyss, and it's the best thing I've read in years, so I highly recommend it. Wyman says this, sometimes God calls a person to unbelief in order that faith may take new forms. I haven't found a better summary of my experience in college. I've now come back to look on that moment when I looked at my dorm room ceiling and belief fell out of my, my life for a moment. I've actually come to see that as the moment where God was preparing me for the very calling that I'm trying to live in today. That like if I was gonna serve the church and try to call my neighbors to faith, that I would probably have to go through that sort of dark night so that I could find myself laying hands on the mystery in a, in a new way from my life. And I suspect that might be the case for some of you. Um, the good news, of course, is that in the Christian story, that mystery that we call God is described as love. And I think love has to be particular. I think it's in the very nature of love that love has to look you in the eye in flesh and blood and say, I love you. And so the gift of the Christian story is that that love, which is God, which is a mystery far beyond anything that we could wrap our arms around or master, that that mystery has revealed itself, has disclosed itself, has manifested itself in a body, and his name is Jesus. So that even if you're appearing into the darkness looking for the resurrection and you can't quite find it, 
even if you're trying to answer all the questions or master all the angles and you can't quite get there, we're given the gift of the life of the body of, of the presence of Jesus because that, that mystery revealed itself as love and love is particular. So Jesus is there with Thomas and he says, here, come touch my body. For some of you who are really struggling to get your hands on faith, today the invitation for you might be um, get your hand on the, on the body. Like, let this community embrace you. It might be that the bridge to faith that you need is to trust the flesh and blood bodies that are sitting next to you at the table right now. It might be that um, when Jesus says that this would be his body, he really meant it. And that the kind of particular love that would call people to faith is going to be lived out through the flesh and blood of Redeemer Central. Um, through meals and embraces and through prayers together. To showing up and digging into the dirt together. Um, I believe God is a mystery that we're not going to contain. I believe that the closer you get to the center, the more you might feel that it's a little bit elusive, but I find that to be the most gratifying thing in the world because that means it's God and not just some construct in my head. And I believe that mystery has revealed itself in Jesus. Um, the other good news is that Jesus has given us a meal. And so I think this Easter tide season, it'd be really appropriate for us to meet Jesus at the table again today. Uh, I'll invite the band to come up. and um, I'd love to just pray for you, pray for our time at the table, if that's all right. And then uh, you'll be free to get up out of your seat and go to the back or come to the front and to receive the meal that Jesus has given us. Uh, let's, let's pray. Loving God, I think when we are most awake, we know that our souls long for you. That there's a hunger in our belly, that there's a thirst in our mouths for more than food and drink. There's a desire for you. And yet I think many of us have found that when we reach for you, there's something elusive about the thing that we hope to have in our grasp. I believe some of us are frustrated or exhausted from that. I believe some of us are discouraged because of that. I believe some of us are ashamed because of it because maybe we've looked and we've seen demonstrations of faith that seems so certain and we've looked at ourselves and we've seen something else and we have hung our heads. And yet in the scriptures again and again when we get to the center, we find a mystery that is somehow hidden in some ways. And I suspect it's not because you are running away from us but because you are so far beyond us, so expansive, so beautiful, so good, so beyond the apprehension of our minds that you would have to cease being yourself to become something that we could contain. So I thank you for the mystery that you are, that we find our lives and our world held in a larger frame, which is God. I thank you for a mystery that we will never get to the bottom of because 
who you are has no end. But God, I also thank you that in your love, you came in Jesus so that the mystery would be disclosed in a body and flesh and blood, so that we would hear his words, so that we would see him embracing his friends, so that we would know him healing the sick, so that we would know him raising up the poor, so that we would know him bringing in the outcast to the center of the family, so that we wouldn't have to wonder what the heart of God looks like in the world, but we would see it in Jesus again and again. So I pray for any of us who doubt and who wonder, I pray that we would somehow have the gift that Thomas was given of laying hands on the body, but we might know today it may not be Jesus from 2,000 years ago. It may be the spirit of Christ living out his life in this body. I pray that we would know the particular love of God revealed in Jesus, and I pray that we would begin to inhabit that love and give it away. God, I believe Belfast is a city longing for the particular love that you revealed in Jesus. We know that in some ways she is a wounded city and that wounds are healed by love. But we also know she is a beautiful city and that that beauty will be called out by love. We know that there is a dignity in this city that she may have forgotten from time to time, but you haven't wiped it out. You have called it out again. There's a dignity and a beauty in this city. And you might use places like this and people like these to lift her head So I pray for Redeemer. I pray for the seasons ahead for her. I pray that she would enjoy seasons of joy and springtime planting and summer work and fall harvest. I pray that she as a church body would be so wrapped up in your love that she would find herself dancing on the edge of the mystery that you are. And in that dancing, she would invite others, her neighbors, the beloved brothers and sisters of this city into that dance. I pray that the life of Father and Son and Spirit would be so palpable, so tangible here, that even those of us who feel like we cannot get our hands on the mystery would know that we have touched something and that it is good. I pray in our hunger and thirst that you would meet us at the table today that the bread and the cup would be for us the life of Jesus given for the world, that we would know your love in this meal, and that we would know you, that ultimate mystery which has given us our being, our very lives, that power which has redeemed us and made us whole, that voice which calls us into that unknown future that you have laid out for us, that we might walk bravely and and boldly, tenderly and humbly into the future with you. I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen.